Hello, and welcome back to Exhaling Words, the language podcast where I just kind of sit and talk about a topic that's been on my mind, and you guys are just here for the ride at this point. This week, I want to I want to address probably the most common question that I get from people all the time. I get it in private messages. I get it from students at the elementary level. I have talked about this on my Instagram. This is this is probably the most popular question when it comes to Arabic, and especially studying Arabic. How do I study Arabic? How do I do standard Arabic versus dialect? Which one do I pick? Which dialect do I pick? You know, this whole question of how does one go about studying Arabic and handling Arabic diglossia? And is there a preferred way or what are my recommendations? And so I want to lay this out for posterity in a podcast episode that says this is sort of how I approach it and this is my recommendations. That being said, if you're listening to this two years from now, it's currently May of uh, 2021, I may have changed my mind uh, given, you know, teaching Arabic and more life experiences and whatnot. I may see things differently, but given the experience that I've had both learning Arabic over the past 12 years and teaching Arabic over the past, I've really been teaching Arabic since, I've been teaching Arabic in the classroom formally since 2017. So over the past, you know, five years or uh, four years of teaching Arabic, I, you know, these are my, these are my recommendations. So I think this sort of breaks down into three kind of questions, sort of how do we broach the diglossia? So can you do one? Can you do both? Which one do you do? What order? Something like that or how to consider it? How do you pick a dialect? Which dialect do you pick? And if you're going to do both, which spoiler alert, I almost always recommend doing both. How do you go about doing that? So let's start with just the general question of dealing with standard Arabic MSA versus a dialect. For those of you who haven't been following along, I might also refer to MSA as Fusha while I talk about this, and I might also refer to dialects as Amiya. I, I tend to go back and forth. Okay, so I think that the easiest way to break this down, and this is what most people do, is the question of what is the goal? If your goal is just simple conversational Arabic with people, specifically people from a specific dialect community, obviously then you just do dialect. That's it. Because that's really what dialect is used for, right? That's what we've talked about over the past few weeks. The dialectal forms of Arabic, the colloquial forms of Arabic, are used in everyday conversation. They're used between people to communicate when speaking. You know, these are people's native languages. However, they can be very localized to a specific community. So if you learn one, that might really only prepare you for that one. Whereas standard Arabic is, it has become a lingua franca. It's used primarily in reading and writing, although also in speaking in sort of mass media in very formal settings. But it clearly has different uses and thus comes with different goals. And so I think that's the sort of most basic way to lay that out. The struggle with laying it out between, okay, well, here are your two goals, conversational proficiency versus reading and writing, is that they come with limitations. If you only do a colloquial form of Arabic, it means that you're only going to have that type of proficiency and you're only going to have that proficiency in that specific colloquial form. What I mean by that is say you decide you're going to learn Lebanese Arabic. 
you're only going to learn Lebanese Arabic. You're probably only going to learn to speak it and maybe learn to read and write in terms of like chatting with people on the internet. And then that's only Lebanese. When you go and talk to an Egyptian person, you're not going to understand at the same level of proficiency that you would when speaking to a speaker of Lebanese dialect. It's not that there isn't a certain level of mutual intelligibility between dialects, but depending on the pairing of the dialects, that level of mutual intelligibility can be quite low. So if you've only been trained in that dialect, that's what you're going to be limited to. And I know this is one of those places where people often come back, especially very proficient speakers or native speakers, and you know start the whole, oh, well, we understand each other. And I addressed this a couple episodes ago. I understand that from those perspectives, yes, we do understand each other. I understand multiple dialect speakers. However, I've also witnessed in front of me non-native speakers of Arabic who learned a specific dialect and then when given another dialect that was drastically different from theirs, they were very lost. And not even drastically different. I'm talking about somebody who learned standard Arabic and then learned to speak Egyptian, which struggled keeping up with me who speaks sort of Southern Levantine and a Lebanese woman. Like three of us were in a circle of friends and colleagues and he, it took him a while to get used to the way she and I would speak. That That is the reality of it. And this is where I do push back against native speakers who say, well, we understand each other. That's because you're native speakers. That's because of exposure. That's because of things that I've discussed previously. As a non-native speaker, we have to go through that same level of learning and exposure and often actively done in studying multiple dialects in order to have that level of mutual intelligibility. As a non-native speaker, we have to be taught those other dialects or at least be exposed to them enough where we pick them up, at least on a passive level, Otherwise, no, we will only understand the speakers of the dialects that we that we know. And this is not even just an Arabic thing. I mean, this happens in all languages. If you're taught Spanish by the same Spanish teacher with a very particular accent, that's the only Spanish you're ever going to understand. Or I've talked about this previously about like Brazilian Portuguese and me being taught by somebody from Sao Paulo and then living with a girl from, from Hugh and then sitting in a class with somebody from... Um, somebody from the north with a, with like a Nordestino accent. If you are not exposed to those three different accents, you are not going to have a high level of mutual intelligibility when you try to speak with somebody from an accent that you're not used to. It's just it's just a fact of life. This is how this is this is part of language learning is that if you're not exposed to another accent or another dialect, you're not going to understand features of it that are unique to it. Anyways, since I got off that tangent, let's go back to this. So the limitation of dialect is that you're going to be limited to that dialect or to closely related dialects, or you're going to be at a loss when trying to speak with somebody who's a speaker of another dialect. The limitation of only doing standard Arabic is the fact that it is sort of only really used in reading and writing, and so that's kind of the only skill you get. And even if you do learn to speak it, and I'm somebody who learned to speak standard Arabic before I learned to speak dialect, and I have lots of friends and colleagues who learned to speak standard before they learned to speak dialect. Yes, native speakers will understand you quite often, but they usually do not respond in standard Arabic, and so you're still going to be at a loss when trying to understand them. Or if they do respond in standard, they're going to respond in that sort of native understanding of what is fosha, and this is something that I talked about in, I don't remember which episode, probably two episodes ago where the American and Western understanding of standard Arabic or Fosha when we teach it is not the same level of Fosha when Arabs are taught it. And I remember, again, 
this is anecdotal evidence, but it's true. Is like, you know, I would talk to native speakers and be like, yeah, I'm studying Fosal. Yes, I'm studying standard Arabic. And to me, I'm studying that sort of low level of Fosal that I spoke about or that very high level of colloquial and standard and native Arabic speakers are thinking that I'm speaking that higher than that I need to be speaking Fosal Turath or no, sorry, Fosal Asad and something much more formal than what I was actually being learned. Wow, my English today, what I was actually being taught by by teachers here in the U.S. So that's sort of the issue. Now, the sort of simple response to these issues of picking one or the other is that if you really want a full and deep mastery of Arabic, besides the fact that you're going to spend your life trying to get that, but if you want to sort of really have an understanding of both and a more complex understanding of the language and better use of it, you have to do both. Just period and discussion. Now, I use the word full mastery. Obviously, full mastery is not something that we're really aiming for here. Nobody has that except for, you know, very well-educated native speakers. Um, I don't like the word mastery to begin with, but I'd rather use that over fluency. But what I mean by full mastery is that if you want to have both the concept of, you know, conversational proficiency in a colloquial form, in a dialect, as well as literacy and reading and writing abilities in standard Arabic you have to do both. They, they're two separate skills that must be learned individually. So what does that really look like? On a very practical level, it looks like you have to learn standard Arabic. You have to learn a colloquial. And this will be the colloquial that is your first colloquial that you function in more than anything else. And then you have to sort of learn a second colloquial on a passive level. With that, you also get into the realm of like, learning multiple colloquials on a passive level. Like in my situation, for example, I learned Levantine. I was taught by Palestinian professors here in the U.S. And then I lived in Jordan. I lived with a Palestinian family in Jordan. Probably about half my teachers were Palestinian and the other half were, you know, natively Jordanian, historically speaking. This is the dialect that I was most comfortable in. Then I you know, sort of expanded out of Southern Levantine into Northern Levantine. And a lot of the music and media that I consumed was in Lebanese and in Syrian. So that's a dialect that I'm comfortable with. And to be honest, now when I speak, I sort of speak, I tend to still use more Southern Levantine constructions, but my accent has sort of shifted to be a bit more Northern Levantine because of just, I've, I've worked with a lot more Lebanese people than I have with, with Jordanians and Palestinians over the past several years. But beyond that, I have studied Egyptian Arabic, I've studied Iraqi Arabic, I've studied a little bit of Gulf Arabic and Moroccan Arabic, and I've worked with colleagues and fellow teachers from all of these regions and countries and just sort of gotten used to how they speak. I would not claim to be a proficient speaker of any of these dialects, but I passively understand my colleagues and my friends who are native speakers of these dialects at particular levels. Obviously, something like Moroccan Arabic is very different and takes much more study and exposure. And so when I speak in Arabic to Moroccan friends, they sort of shift into Egyptian or they shift into, you know, what I talked about previously that many of them call Lahja Baida. But when I speak with the Iraqis, at least the Baghdadis that I know, they speak very traditional, like this is what they would speak at home for the most part with me, and I follow the majority of it. I don't work as much with uh, with colleagues from the Gulf. I just don't have a lot of colleagues from the Gulf. They're mostly, most of the teachers that I work with are Egyptian, um, Syrian, Lebanese, Iraqi, and a few Moroccans. And so 
I don't have a lot a lot of exposure of golf dialects, but I've consumed media from the golf. I watch films, um, listen to some music, and so there are features of golf dialect that I am familiar with. So this is what I mean, is that it's about all that exposure and sort of at least a low level of passive study. I'm never going to speak in that dialect unless I really sat down and was like, I want to learn Iraqi and I want to learn to speak Iraqi. And that is a goal of mine, actually, is Iraqi dialect. But like, I don't really have plans to ever sit down and be like, I want to learn to speak Moroccan Arabic. And that's just me. Like, it's just not something I'm super interested in doing. But I need to be able to understand some of it. And I need to be able to understand some Gulf and some Egyptian and some Iraqi, because if you are going to functionally interact with people from all over the Arabic speaking world, you have to be prepared for that. And that's what I mean by you need to have your colloquial that you sort of live in which for me is Levantine. And then you need to have a certain level of passive understanding of other colloquials. And some of this comes from study, from actively studying features of them, and some of it just comes from exposure over time. A point that I usually add to this is sort of going to lead us into how do you pick a dialect. But I usually say that if your first colloquial is not Levantine or Egyptian, your second passive colloquial needs to be Levantine or Egyptian, or both. Similarly, you know, if your first colloquial is Egyptian, you need to have a passive understanding of Levantine. If your first colloquial is Levantine, you need to have a passive understanding of Egyptian. This statement is by no means to discriminate against Iraqi dialect, other North African dialects, Gulf dialects, other African dialects like Sudanese or, um, or Djibouti dialect or anything like that. This is simply to be practical. Egypt and particularly Lebanon, but also Syria, are the largest producers of mass media in the Arab world. Both historically speaking, historically speaking, it was mostly Egypt and then Lebanon. Now it's really sort of both. I would say that they rival one another. Or if you expand Lebanon into Syria, because a lot of like the, a lot of the Turkish series that are brought into the Arab world are dubbed into Syrian dialect. These are probably the two most widely understood dialects. I'd still say that Egyptian is more widely understood than Levantine, but generally these are two of the most widely understood dialects. And so it is just a question of practicality that these are the two first dialects that I recommend to people to study. I also think, and maybe I'm biased here, I think that Southern Levantine is very accessible for students who have studied standard Arabic. I don't feel like there's drastic, drastic sound shifts. I don't feel like there's drastic word order shifts or anything. But again, I might be biased here. But generally, because these are the most widely understood dialects and these are dialects that represent the largest producers of media in the Arabic-speaking world, these are dialects that you need to understand, if not actively speak. Now, again, I don't say any of that to suggest that you shouldn't study another dialect. I want to go back to this question of how do you pick a dialect. I'm just saying that these are the two most prominently understood dialects and the two that you will most commonly come into contact with in terms of media. So, they're just, they're two very useful dialects to understand. Now, in terms of picking a dialect, this is a, this is just such a common question, is how do you pick a dialect, and, and which one do I pick, and what do I consider? And really, this to me is not a hard question. It's the same response that I give when people are like, how do I pick a language, what, what sort of language do I pick, and whatever. My response is always, what do you want? What what do you want? What do you want to learn? What are you going to use? What What is it that interests you? 
You know, at the end of the day, when I was first studying Arabic, I thought Iraqi was beautiful. I was really interested in like ancient Near Eastern history and like Mesopotamian stuff. And so I was like, oh, let me do Iraqi. I didn't start studying Arabic until 2009. And so the U.S. intervention in the war in Iraq had already begun. And so I knew that chances of me getting to go to Iraq was highly unlikely. And so I was still mostly interested in that kind of region, like the Levant and Mesopotamia. I wasn't super interested in the Gulf or in North Africa. And I'm, I'm just talking like in terms of history that I was interested in. This was just sort of the region that I was more drawn to. And so my, my, uh, my professor during my first semester of Arabic was um, a Palestinian Jordanian woman. And she would tell me stories of like how much she loved going to all the historical sites in Syria and stuff. And so in the back of my head, I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll do Syrian. But she was my professor. And then when I transferred schools, I was taught by a Palestinian woman born and raised in, in the West Bank. And I just really got comfortable with that dialect. And I still kind of want to go to Syria because of history and stuff. And then in 2011, the Syrian civil war broke out. And I was supposed to study abroad in 2012. And so that just really didn't seem feasible anymore. And given what was going on in the Arab world around that time, between sort of, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, even I, I wasn't, again, not to be biased, but I just I wasn't particularly drawn to Egypt. And also it was very difficult to go to Egypt. They were giving us a lot of warnings as American students about getting visas for Egypt. And so Egypt wasn't high on my list. I couldn't go to Syria. Lebanon was still vaguely questionable. Um, not that it was super, super unsafe or anything, but they were just still, you know, you would get warnings and they would really make sure, like, like, are you sure you want to go live in Beirut? And I was also trying to be very practical about wanting to focus my study of Arabic over something like French. I was also doing a degree in French. I was afraid that if I went to Lebanon, I'd end up speaking a lot of French and English. I looked at a program in Morocco because that's what people always suggested to me. They were like, do Morocco. Like, you can use your French. You're close to Spain. You could use your Spanish. I don't know. It's just, this was something that I was never drawn to. You know, I had a professor who straight up told me, that's what you should go do your PhD in, is you should work on, like, Moorish Spain and that period of Spanish history. And you can use, you know, Spanish and French and Latin and Arabic and Hebrew and all these languages that I work in. And, and it is a period of history that I'm very interested in. But it just... I wanted to live in the Levant. Like, that was where I wanted to go. And so I I looked at programs in Morocco. Most of them were either not full immersion or they offered electives in French. And I was really sort of pushing for, I want to just immerse myself in Arabic. And so I went to Jordan. Jordan had a full immersion program. I went there. I did it. It was great. I'm, I don't regret a single second of it. But those were my decisions because of what I wanted. I've had students since then who are just very interested in Morocco. And so I'm like, by all means, go to Morocco. Learn Moroccan dialect. That's great. More power to you. Same thing, you know, if somebody really wanted to learn Iraqi Arabic, I'm not going to suggest, like, please go run around unsupervised in Iraq. I think parts of Iraq are far more stable now, or they are more stable than they were in, you know, from 2003 to, to what, maybe 2014 15 but there's still a lot of instability in parts of iraq and i'd still you know suggest that people be very careful if they were to travel there but you know if that's what somebody is drawn to if you you know grew up around an iraqi community here in the u.s or in europe and that's the community that you've sort of become a part of and gotten to interact with and love then by all means learn iraqi arabic i have friends who 
you know, grew up around Yemeni communities, and that's the dialect they learned. It's a very unique dialect. There are, you know, features of some of the sub-dialects of Yemen that are not like other dialects of Arabic. And so, yes, it's it's something very minute to focus on, but by all means, do it. If that's what you want, if that's what you love, if that's where your passion is, pick that dialect. All of that being said, you still want to consider these questions of what is more widely understood across the Arabic-speaking world. So if you are going to learn Moroccan dialect, again, I still suggest that you learn some Egyptian or that you learn to understand Egyptian. Actually, most programs in Morocco these days will teach you standard Arabic. They'll teach you Egyptian. And then if you really are interested in learning Moroccan dialect, they'll also teach you Moroccan dialect. You can usually get some Egyptian Arabic courses in Morocco. Doing something like Iraqi Arabic is a little bit harder. Not a lot of places offer that and teach that even when you're studying abroad, but it can be done. Now, if you're not picky, like if you're somebody who's generally interested in history and, you know, you could go anywhere throughout the Arab world, this is where I do kind of say, think about these dialects that are more widely understood or or think about other weird uses that you might have. So, for example, I had a student who worked on ancient biblical history, but he went and did digs in Jordan. And so I was like, learn Jordanian Arabic. Duh. Like, you know, they tend to hire locals to help with the digs, learn to talk with them, build those relationships, you know, make that sort of community at your dig site by learning to speak Jordanian Arabic. Like that was the logic to me. It's not the first place people go. People go, oh, well, I'm just interested in the ancient world. And so I guess I'll just do standard Arabic for history. And yes, that's, that's all great and good. But think about who are you going to come into contact with and and what communities are you going to be able to interact with and what are their dialects? You know, if you're not really going to get to travel abroad, what is the community near you? You know, if you live in a city with a relatively small Arab community, it might be very much localized to a specific region or country or a few countries. Where are they from? If that's a community you want to work with, Work with them. If you're going to work with refugees here in the States, the organization that you're working with, where where do most of the refugees that come into that organization, where do they come from? You know, and I have friends who have done that, that they, they spoke standard Arabic, they only studied standard Arabic, and then they started volunteering with an NGO, and they went and worked with refugees in Lebanon, and that's why they speak Lebanese Arabic. You know, everybody has this sort of personal story behind how they get to their dialect or why they chose their dialect. And you have to let that be that for yourself. What is it that you want? What is the community that you are in or that you want to be a part of or that you want to travel to or that you want to work with or whatever whatever your motivation may be and go from there? I was surrounded by people in the Levant. I was surrounded by Palestinians. I was surrounded, you know, coming back from Jordan. I worked a lot with people from Lebanon. You know, these are the dialects that I'm most comfortable in. Even more so than, say, Syrian. Like, I'd say Syrian is probably my weakest sort of sub-dialect of the Levant. I'm most comfortable in Jordanian, Palestinian, and Lebanese, and probably in that order. And then Syrian. This is my story, and that's how I've gotten to where I am with with, with my proficiencies in, in colloquial Arabic. And everybody else has different stories, you know? I have a friend, I'll give him a shout-out here, Antonio. Um, if you don't follow him on Instagram, his Instagram is 
I don't know how to read it. It's idioma zin or idioma zin. Like I always think of it as mazin is in the Arabic name, but whatever it is, it's idioma zin, whatever. He's a sweetheart. He speaks wonderful Lebanese Arabic. And that was just, that was the community that he was around. He had Lebanese friends. And so that was the dialect that he learned. Each of us have our own stories about how we got to this dialect of Arabic and how we became part of the communities that we're in. And, and that's a personal journey for you. So don't worry if somebody's telling you, oh, well, you have to learn Egyptian. If you don't want to learn Egyptian, don't learn Egyptian. If you want to eventually come back to Egyptian to understand Egyptian film or media or something, sure, do that. But if you are drawn to Morocco, if you're drawn to Oman, if you're drawn to Djibouti or Lebanon or Iraq or, you know, any sort of specific country or region, then go study that. There are resources for all of it. Some have fewer than others. You know, like Yemeni dialects have very few resources. I think like Sudanese Arabic really doesn't have any resources or maybe a couple linguistic texts. Obviously, Egyptian has a plethora of resources, but there is something out there. You just have to find it. And if you can't find it, reach out to me because I've seen most of these resources in practice somewhere. So I will help you find them. But yeah, don't let others dictate your dialect choice. That's on you. And what do you want to do? What is the community that's around you? Who are you going to engage with? Because that's the thing at the end of the day. Standard Arabic is the language of mass media. It is a transnational sort of language, like a lingua franca. And though there is great literature written in it and probably very personal literature written in it, at the end of the day, if you are here to talk with people and understand and relate with people on a personal level, that is done in colloquial Arabic. Okay, so I realize now that this is already going long. I planned this. I knew that this episode was going to be probably nearly an hour. Hopefully not a whole hour, maybe more like 45 minutes. So I hope you bear with me. But I want to move on to the last point. The last point is really how do we go about studying Arabic, particularly when we want to study both standard Arabic and colloquial Arabic. This in Arabic language education these days is what we refer to as the integrated approach. It used to be, particularly in the West, that as we taught Arabic, we only taught standard Arabic. This has a lot to do with a history of Orientalism and a lack of concern for modern colloquial forms of Arabic and more concern with classical literature and texts and reading the Quran or reading poetry or reading Arabic language novels and things. The focus on studying Arabic really has come around in this past sort of generation or two. I remember hearing stories from the generation of my professors and being told about how they would, you know, be in Lebanon or in Egypt at a conference with some of the world's like greatest Arabists talking about literature and history or whatever. And then they go out to a cafe and these people couldn't order coffee. And this was told by a professor of mine who um, speaks beautiful Egyptian Arabic. Like he's this, no offense if he hears this, but I doubt he will. He's a middle-aged bald white man. But when he opens his mouth, you would think that he's, you know, somebody's Egyptian dad or something. Um, He's beautiful Egyptian Arabic, lived in Egypt for years, incredibly intelligent man who really knows the Arabic language very well inside and out. But he was sort of an anomaly for his generation of of Arabists and in the fact that he really learned to speak colloquial Arabic quite well. This was not common practice, even in my generation of students of Arabic, and I started, what, in 2009? Colloquial Arabic was something that was just starting to be taught. 
If you studied Arabic with the Al-Kitab books, which are very common in the English-speaking world, probably still the most common uh, textbook for Arabic, the first generation, uh, first edition of Al-Kitab books, I don't think taught colloquial at all. My my edition, when I was a student, was the second edition where they had sort of an extra DVD that you could buy that had the colloquial of that of that lesson, and it was just like the dialogue and maybe a vocab list at the end of the chapter. Now in the third edition, which is what I taught with um, when I was teaching at university, this was, you know, it was fully integrated. It was, you know, your vocab list had standard Arabic, Egyptian Arabic, and Syrian Arabic, and then when they taught grammar, they also taught the Egyptian forms, they taught the Syrian forms, and the professor got to pick sort of which dialect they taught. Now there are also more and more books doing the integrated approach, but more localized for specific language. So for example... There's a book coming out of uh, Princeton University Press called, um, what's it called? Arabiyat al I think it's called Arabiyat al There's three books. It was originally published just for Jordanian Arabic, which, again, I'm a little bit biased, but I really enjoyed. And now they have a version for Egyptian Arabic. I don't know if they have all three books out. I'm a little bit behind on that. Outside of those two books of the Al-Kitab series and Arabiyat al most dialect resources in Arabic focus just on dialect, which which is what makes trying to do both kind of difficult, is that there isn't a lot out there that does both side by side. Also, I, I recognize that a lot of my listeners are sort of these online learners who do self-study like me, and there aren't really great resources for that. The good self-study resources out there are either standard or are a specific dialect, and trying to combine the two can be hard. Personally, I like the idea of prioritizing one over the other based on your goals. Traditionally speaking, again, we in academia, we would prioritize standard Arabic over colloquial. Even in the modern day where we're teaching them sort of side by side more, we still usually prioritize standard. And I think that's because of our education system. We're focused much more on reading and writing than on spoken proficiency. But this is also dependent on school. Some schools really go hard into the colloquial and really go hard on speaking proficiency with their students. And I I highly applaud that. But generally, I find that the focus is still very much on MSA, probably because it does reach a wider audience, probably because we can then give students news and real Arabic language media. But at the same time, you know, it's hard because I'd be teaching MSA and students are like, well, I want to listen to music. And it's like, well, most of the music is in dialect. And they're like, well, I want to watch a, t- uh, you know, a movie or something. That's in dialect. And what about a TV show? Also in dialect. There are some series, I will say, that are done in standard. But th- again, it's the majority of media, the majority of sort of audiovisual media is done in colloquial Arabic. And so that, that makes it difficult. Personally, I do think that that we should be prioritizing one over the other because it is quite difficult to do both. For students who really want to do it all, who, you know, are going to dedicate, like I did, you know, over 10 years of their life to studying Arabic and want to get this high level of proficiency where you can work with it professionally, where you can translate like I do, where you teach or where you go into academia, any of these things, I do generally say maybe put standard Arabic first. And I'm I'm not even saying that in terms of like some people I know say do standard Arabic for a year or two years. And then once you have a really solid base, then do colloquial, which honestly, that's what I did. Um, It wasn't my choice. It's it's the way the education system was built. And so I focused on standard. I knew some basic conversational 
kind of dialecty things. Like I never really walked around ever asked somebody like Me Ismuka. We knew Shuasmuk from the beginning. But but we didn't speak like really full dialect in the classroom. And then I learned um, colloquial Palestinian and Jordanian later. However, I think I think this prioritization of MSA over colloquial can be done, but on a small scale. So, for example, when I taught and we did integrated approach modified because we didn't have a lot of contact hours and we used the Al-Kitab books, I focused on let's teach the standard Arabic grammar first and then the colloquial or let's teach the standard Arabic vocab first. And once the students are ready with standard Arabic vocab or a standard Arabic grammar, then we'll focus on getting them the colloquial. Because though I hate the concept that the colloquial is simplified, there are just some situations where it is. It's just, it's standard Arabic generally is more complex. I don't use the word simplified to mean that it's lesser or that it's less valuable, but standard Arabic just tends to be a little bit more complex with all of its grammatical rules and stuff. And so especially once you're moving sort of slowly out of the basics and into that sort of upper A2, B1, B2 levels, and you're doing this sort of finessing of fine grammar with case endings and with verbal moods and, you know, these sort of points that just don't exist in dialect anymore. It's just, it's hard to, it's hard to really justify why I would teach somebody colloquial first and then, and then ask them to go learn all these extra rules in standard Arabic. Whereas if you give them all the rules in in standard and you really learn them well, and then you can be like, okay, so that's reading and writing. Now we're not going to use that in speech. What does this speech actually sound like? That just feels much more practical to me. And so there are ways to do that in your self-study. But I'm not going to lie, it's going to take a lot of structure for people. Many of you know, and I've been sort of teasing this for a while, and I really still have no timeline on it because I work a full-time job and stuff, but I'm trying to write an Arabic textbook that is designed for self-study students on the internet, but is also designed to be fully integrated like this so that as you go through each lesson, you're getting the standard Arabic forms and then a focus on the colloquial Arabic forms. This can be done in self-study, even without a book that I'm going to promise to publish in Lord knows how long. But it, it just takes a lot of structure and a lot of planning, and you sort of have to figure that out. And this is why I often talk about when I do self-study, I like to have a single book that sort of pushes me through and gives me structure. And this is sort of where you could do that, is if you have a book for MSA, use that as your single book focus and that gives you the structure and guidance that you need and then as you finish a lesson or are working through a lesson go find that topic whether it's the vocab whether it's the grammar whatever in the colloquial that you want to learn Um, maybe in another book that you have but it might not be structured the same way however it is you can do this on your own it's just going to honestly take more effort on your part there unfortunately are not a great plethora of resources for this kind of study out there. This sort of study is built either for university and the books that do exist for it are built for university classrooms or the self-study resources are focusing more on just learn colloquial spoken Arabic and then pick your colloquial. So the idea that a self-study student might be serious enough to really want to dive into Arabic on a deep level and do both standard and colloquial isn't something that isn't something that really has books on the on the market for that. I'm trying to fix that. I promise I am. It's just it's slow going with the rest of my schedule. However, I will also throw out an advertisement here that this is how I teach. 
So if you're interested in paying maybe for private lessons or something, you can contact me. Um, I'm in the process of setting up a an elementary class for people. Again, life has been crazy, so it's been delayed a little bit. But if you study with me, this is how I teach. And and if you're willing to wait, this is how my book will be structured. But I, I'm, I make no promises about a timeline for that. But this is generally my professional recommendation is if you really are serious enough about studying Arabic that you want to learn both, do both. But prioritize one over the other based on your goals, which it's you know completely valid to say that your goal is colloquial more than anything. So prioritize that. If you are trying to really sort of do both and you don't have a great priority of colloquial over MSA, I generally say do MSA first because it is just more structurally detailed and specific and has more rules. And so you can learn a topic, learn about it well, learn all the MSA vocab, learn all the MSA grammar, and then sort of take time to now, I don't even want to say relearn, because a lot of that fundamental grammar and vocab will be present in whatever the dialect that you're learning is, but it'll be modified. It might be, again, I don't like this word, but maybe simplified in some ways. Some of the words will be different. And some of that also just depends on topic. Like when you get into food, sometimes food vocab is very different in your dialect. Whereas maybe your dialect doesn't have super, you know, unique or different from MSA words about, you know, the home and the names of rooms and stuff like that. It just, it, it is very dialectally specific. So obviously, you know, finding that balance of doing standard versus dialect is really a personal choice, just as much as what dialect do you pick is a, tr- is a personal choice. But this is sort of my professional recommendation and approach. When I have friends or individuals contact me, this is what I recommend is, you know, consider what dialect you want to learn and consider what your goals are in terms of dialect choice, dialect proficiency, standard Arabic proficiency, and then try to structure your learning around that. If you are trying to do both and fully integrate standard Arabic alongside colloquial Arabic in your life and in your learning, my personal recommendation is to sort of prioritize the MSA and the standard Arabic just a step ahead of the colloquial because the standard Arabic will give you a sort of level of structure as you approach the colloquial, as opposed to sometimes, you know, I've seen in my classroom when we learn something in colloquial, like for example, uh, my students once learned the verb to want, and they learned it in standard Arabic, so they learned uri, turi, turidin, whatever, and then I gave them the colloquial version, so we get biddi, biddak, biddak, biddo, bidda, and so on and so forth, and when we did the, I mean, when we did all of this, it was, I want a thing, and I want, you know, I want coffee, I want food, whatever. And on the standard Arabic side, I think the textbook also taught the mazdad, which is a verbal noun. And so, again, you're saying I want a thing, even though it's a verb. Um, in meaning, it's still a noun grammatically. And then I had students ask me, like, what if you say, like, what about a verb? What if I say I want to go, I want to drink, I want to eat, something? And so I'm like, well, in colloquial, you would just put the verb after it. Biddi ashrab. Biddi ruh. Biddi aktubshi. You know, it's just biddi and then the actual verbal form. And then you get students writing things like urid anam, urid aruh, urid adhab. And it's like, okay, well, you can't do that. Now, in some colloquials, you can, like in Iraqi Arabic, you would say arid aruh or arid anam um, because they use, you know, they use arada as a verb even in colloquial. 
But in standard Arabic, you have to have the particle an in front of it. So you have to say urid an adhab, urid an anam, urid an whatever it is. And so this is where it would have been easier to just say, let's learn this structure in standard Arabic. And then when we go over the colloquial parallel, we say, well, we don't use the form an here. But you already have that habit and that rule in your head that when we use the verb arada, it's followed by an or a noun. Whereas in colloquial, you know that bidi is just followed by the verb or a noun. You don't have to worry about an. Whereas going in the opposite direction, I think, is hard because you have to add extra rules when you're moving from colloquial into, into standard. And that's why I generally recommend against that. That's sort of anecdotal, and it's something I learned while teaching. But it's a real fact that at least during the first year or so, a lot of the grammar that you're learning does have parallels in colloquial but they're different and so i always find it better to start with the standard and then shift to the colloquial once you're into second and third year grammar a lot of that grammar you're discussing doesn't apply to colloquial anymore and so you can sort of treat them separately and say now that we have the fundamentals we're going to do high level fancy grammar for reading and writing or whatever over here and then in colloquial we're going to talk about conversational stuff we're going to expand our colloquial vocab we're going to go into idioms and you know they can be treated as two separate things Whereas during that first year, year and a half, depending on the speed of your study, it, it, really, it really is important to maintain the distinction between what is standard and what is colloquial. And I generally find it easier to do the standard form first because the colloquial tends to be based off of that and then remove things or simplify things as opposed to doing the colloquial and then having to add these extra rules and get out of the habit of the way you speak to create the standard. So that's that's my recommendation there. Now, I recognize that this has been an exceptionally long episode, and I apologize in advance for that. But I think this is a topic that can't be done in 30 minutes, and I wanted to sort of put it all out here in one fell swoop for you all to kind of sit and listen and consider all these things. If you, as always, have any questions or thoughts or feedback about today's topic, I would love to hear it. Of course, you know, everybody has different opinions on integrated approach, on dialectal choice, on um, interdialectal mutual intelligibility. And I've heard a lot of them, but please, if you want to talk about it, I'm, I'm always here and I'm always available to talk about it. Again, my name is Polyglot Aaron, P-O-L-Y-G-L-O-T-E-R-I-N, on all major social media and at gmail.com. This, again, is a topic that I love and I'm very sort of personally and professionally invested in. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, answer your questions, hear opinions from other Arabic teachers that are out there. Um, so by all means, please feel free to reach out to me and stay tuned. I'm going to try to do some queer focused stuff for Pride Month over the next few weeks. And then we're going to hop into a series on Semitic languages and non-concatenative morphology, which is just a topic that I love. And if you don't know what those things are, stay tuned. And that's what we'll be getting into in the coming weeks. So... Goodbye.